Praise the Lord. Uh, Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. If you need help finding it, it's the last chapter of the Bible. (laughs) Revelation chapter 22, beginning now at verse 1. We've made our way through the entire book of Revelation, the first chapter where John had this spectacular vision of Jesus. Then chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus dictates to John seven letters to seven different churches, speaking to spiritual and moral conditions within the churches, uh, both at that time to the specific churches that they were written to, but also giving sort of a panoramic span of the general course of church history from the time uh, that Jesus spoke those words to John to the time of his return. Then beginning in Revelation chapter 4, they were taken up to heaven, John was, and he saw this dramatic scene at the throne of God where, where unfolding before him would be the disposition of all uh, created affairs and the, 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 the working out of the end of God's plan of the ages. And then we saw that plan set into motion. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls each one of them bringing an aspect of the great judgment of God coming upon the earth during the great tribulation. And we saw a a, a whole cavalcade of figures, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the the woman representing Israel, the harlot of Revelation chapter 17, Babylon of Revelation chapter 18, culminating all in Revelation chapter 19, where Jesus Christ returns to the earth in glory with 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 armies accompanying him and establishing his kingdom, which we saw beautifully in Revelation chapter 20. Last week, Revelation chapter 21, we saw the beginning of this last two-chapter section that speaks of heaven. And now, chapter 22, we speak more of what John sees when he sees the glory of eternity future of heaven. Revelation 22:1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Throughout the Old Testament, prophets used the picture of a river as a powerful expression of richness, provision, in peace. Isaiah chapter 48 speaks of peace like a river. Zechariah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 47 speak of prophetic rivers, which not only will be literal in the millennial earth, but also speak of the deep spiritual richness. It's also reflected by passages like Psalm 46. There is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. River speaking of provision and power and glory and and strength. You know, one of the happiest things on earth is water. I know people talk about the beauty of the desert and how wonderful it is. Well, it's only beautiful because they put all those swimming pools out there. And it's only beautiful because you can open up the the, the spigot and get water anytime you want it. Take away all the water out of the desert, leave it in its natural form, and it's not so beautiful anymore. It's just hot and dry. Friends, we love water, don't we? At the seashore, at a great, beautiful river, at a wonderful lake. Friends, and especially in that part of the world, in the Middle East, there's nothing as beautiful, as plentiful, as a bright, pure supply of living water. And this is it now in heaven. Flowing forth, note it, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This river of provision comes right from God's throne. And becomes, because it comes from God, it can't be anything more than pure. It's clear as crystal, and it's abundant. And again, Ezekiel saw a glorious river in Ezekiel chapter 47. It was flowing down from the temple in Jerusalem and then into the sea. But that river belongs to the millennial earth. Perhaps that millennial river of Ezekiel chapter 47 speaks as a preview of this heavenly river. This is a better river. And one of the reasons it's a better river is because it has better trees around it. Look at verse 2. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The Bible begins in Genesis chapter 3 with a tree of life. 
But man was not allowed to eat of that tree after his sin at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we see the tree of life again and mankind is invited, come, come and eat of it. Redeemed humanity can have a banquet at the tree of life. It's a little bit hard to figure out exactly the geography of what John writes about here. He says, if you notice here in verse 2, that in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. It's hard to describe this heavenly landscaping. John might be describing a large street with a river flowing down right the middle of it and perhaps a series of trees that, that grow with roots on either side, on either side of the river. We don't know. You go to one commentary and say, well, this is what it looks like. You can even look for pictures, people trying to draw what they think it represents. I don't know, friends, if I had to pin it down to anything, I'd picture a big street, wide, glorious, broad avenue, paved with gold, of course. Flowing down the middle of that street is this beautiful, clear, crystal river, beautiful. Then on either side is not just one tree. The ancient Greek language here, when it talks about the tree of life, it can actually refer to a whole series of trees lining either side of the tree. It's a beautiful thing just to behold in your mind, more beautiful than any park, more beautiful than anything that anybody could make on this earth. But It's not just the beauty of it that's striking. Look at it there in verse 2. Each tree yielding its fruit every month. You know, I found something striking there, and I had never noticed it before. Right there, in Revelation 22.2, we have a time indicator. Now, we usually don't think of that, do we? We think that when we go to eternity, all kinds of things referring to time are done away with. No more calendars, no more watches, no more months, no more... Well, right here, you have months. Uh, Apparently, heaven will still mark time, but it won't be subject to time in the same way that we are on this side of eternity. I noticed something else. There's going to be eating in heaven because it bears fruit. What's the use of fruit if you're not eating it? And friends, what good is heaven if you can't eat there? Now some people wonder, are we going to eat in heaven? I think the best answer is to say that we can eat, but you won't have to. You know, in Jesus' resurrection body, he enjoyed food. We find several instances in his resurrection appearances where he ate with the disciples. We know in Genesis chapter 18 that angels ate with Abraham. And the great heavenly reunion between Jesus and his people is described as a marriage supper. And friends, even though mankind fell by what he ate, God will still allow us to eat in heaven. Eating is also so often a picture of sweet fellowship in the scriptures, isn't it? You know, as you think about it, in the Old Testament, in both the tabernacle and the temple, when you went in there, each piece of furnishings, each aspect of that whole structure speaks of heaven and reflects Jesus Christ in some way. And there was one piece of furniture within the temple, within the tabernacle, that spoke of fellowship with God, and it was the table of showbread. And it was to be replaced regularly. I think if anything represents the table of showbread, it's these glorious trees standing in the golden streets of the new Jerusalem. It has its, its monthly fruit, and it's ever fresh. And you say, come, eat with me, God says. Come, eat from my presence, this life-giving presence that I have. You notice as well, verse 2, it says that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. First question you might ask is, why do the nations need healing at all? Well, in the Ancient Greek language, the word for healing can also mean health-giving, and I think that's the sense here. It's not that anybody's sick and needs to be healed. Friends, this is heaven. But yet the leaves are there for the blessing and the goodness and, the, and the, uh, uh, just outworking a beautiful health in the people of heaven. Now, friends, we read verses like 1 and 2 of Revelation chapter 22, and you can't help but try to picture the scene in your mind, right? I hope you're trying to picture it. Why else would God speak to us in picturesque language if he didn't want you to picture it in your mind? But friends, we also know that we can't really picture it, can we? We can do the best we can, but we realize it's just a a very weak, feeble attempt. And some people wonder if the images that we see here, are they literal or are they symbolic? Friends, I have to say that in one sense, they're certainly literal, but you can't describe another dimension like heaven without using symbolic language. But friends, there's symbols connected to the reality. What John saw may or may not be exactly like a river on earth. 
But when you get to heaven, you're going to look at it and you say, that's a river. It may not be exactly what we know of as a river on earth. But you're going to know what it is. And you're going to know, yes, it's exactly what John was speaking of. You see, this is the great benefit of reading and studying a chapter like Revelation chapter 22. When you get to heaven, you're going to know a little bit more than a lot of other people. I mean, you're going to be able to take people around. You say, yeah, I know what these trees here are for. They're for the healing of the nations. It's trees of life. Yeah, I've seen this street. I read about it before. You can be a tour guide for other people in heaven. You've read up on it. Friends, even though this great chapter of the Bible tells us of heaven, we should think about it now and take in now whatever that we can. You should have a heavenly orientation. Now listen, I don't believe you can say that a man is shooting at a target unless he's looking that way. I can't say, well, there's the target over there. I'll just kind of go like this, but I won't look over there. No, that's silly. If you want to really hit a target, you aim at it and you look at it. Friends, I don't think we can say that a man's ambition is focused on heaven if he doesn't have any heavenward thoughts, any heavenly aspirations, and we're filled with those, aren't we? We want it. So what's it going to be like? What are we going to do? Look at verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Friends, in heaven the curse is gone. There shall be no more curse. Since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Edom, man and creation have lived with the effect of the curse described in Revelation chapter 3. Sorrow and pain in childbirth for women, friction between the sexes, and the necessity of hard and often futile work for man's sustenance, and the worst enemy of all, death. I want you to understand that these aspects of the curse will be present on the earth even during the millennium, even though they will be greatly mitigated by the perfect rule of Jesus. But friends, Isaiah 65.20 shows us that it will still be possible for a sinner to be accursed in the millennial earth. But in the new heaven and in the new earth, the curse is done away with. Instead of a curse, what do you have? Look at it there, verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. That sounds like a good trade to me. I'll give you one curse, you give me the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's quite an exchange. Friends, don't you, don't you see there in verse 3, in the first three verses, John's repeated it twice. The throne of God and of the Lamb. I think that's a very powerful image. I want you to notice that, first of all, it shows us that that he's speaking of the throne of God the Father and the throne of God the Son. God the Father and the Lamb of God. What I want you to see here is, first of all, that there's no competition between those two thrones. You know, sometimes people get the idea that God the Father is the cranky one, the angry one. And the Son is, well, holding, holding, please, Dad, don't hurt them. Friends, there's no disagreement between the Father and the Son. Did you know that the Son perfectly represents the Father? Every aspect of the loving, gracious, merciful, kind, gentle nature of Jesus is a reflection of the nature of God the Father. I want you to see, too, that God the Father, it speaks to us of of, of a standard of righteousness, of holiness, of judgment, perhaps, even. But it's also the the throne of the atoning Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, you're not going to be afraid to come to that throne. It'll be awesome. It'll be bright. It'll be outshining in its glorious radiance. Yet it will be the throne of the sacrificed Lamb of God who is our atonement before that throne. Friends, I want you to see that the altar and the throne are almost identical there. And from that throne, there can never be some kind of fiery lightning bolt of judgment cast against the believer. Because it's the throne of the Lamb, as well as the throne of God the Father. So what do we do in heaven? We sit around and play harps, right? No way, my friends. Look at it there in verse 3. And his servants shall serve him. Friends, I think you can do a beautiful little check on your heart right now. 
Does that thrill you or depress you? That his servants shall serve him. Oh, I just wanted to rest in heaven. Friends, heaven is going to be a place of glorious work for God's people. And I don't know how, I don't know what, but friends, it wouldn't be heaven if there wasn't a way that we could serve God. It wouldn't be heaven if there wasn't a way that we can be productive and useful for his service. However, this is a pure picture of the pure blessedness of service. It's not the arduous, curse-stained stoil, uh, toil that we've known for, for all of human history. Heaven is not a place of kickback leisure, but it's a place where service is done, centering on God. He has work for us to do in heaven, and we don't know what it is, but it's going to be glorious. There's more for us to do. And in heaven, his servants shall serve him. But look at it there in verse 4. Does it get even better? Yes, it does. And they shall see his face. Heaven is going to be a place where God's people see his face. That speaks of intimate, face-to-face fellowship with God. I want you to understand that Moses was denied the privilege of seeing God face-to-face. God said, I'm only going to let you see the, 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 the outshining of my glory, if you will, the tail of the comet, not the comet itself. It was all Moses could take in. He couldn't even take in the, the afterglow of God's glory without being shielded in a place of protection and and God holding his hand over him. But friends, everyone in heaven shall see his face. Everyone. Everyone in heaven knows God and is treated to a more intimate glimpse of his presence than even the holiest, more spiritual person on this earth. Friends, when we talk about seeing the face of God, it means, first of all, that we will literally and physically, with our risen bodies, actually look into the face of Jesus. But it also means this that our spiritual and mental faculties will be so enlarged that we will be able to look into the very face, the very heart, soul, and character of Jesus, and we're going to understand his work, his love, and everything that he is as we've never understood him before. If you want to know Jesus, if you love him, if you long for him, this is the greatest reward you can ever have. Now you can know something of it right now. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone into our heart to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can see something of that right now. But even Paul knew that there would be a greater fulfillment of it. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Friends, in that day, there's going to be nothing that obscures our vision of Jesus. We're going to see Jesus more clearly than ever because sin is done away with. Don't you hate how sin obscures your vision of Jesus? You're going to see Jesus more clearly because all care, all worry is done away with. You know, when you're all bound up with worry and anxiety, you're not seeing Jesus clearly. And friends, we're going to see Jesus more clearly because all idols are done away with. Nothing, nothing to distract our focus. And friends, this will be the greatest glory of heaven to know God, to know Jesus more intimately, more wonderfully than we ever could on earth. This is going to be the chief blessing of heaven. Charles Spurgeon called it the cream of heaven, the heaven of heaven, that the saints shall see Jesus. Friends, it's going to be a glorious thing. That's not all. Look at verse 4. And his name shall be on their foreheads. And we can imagine some great man of this earth, a celebrity who would say, Well, I will allow you to be in my presence. Yes, you may interview me. You may see me face to face. But for that great man or that celebrity to say, I want to identify myself with you. I'm going to put my name on your forehead. Everybody will know you belong to me. You're mine. Friends, heaven will be a place where God's people are forever identified with their God and there will never be any doubt that they belong to Him. 
Look at it there in verse 5. There's going to be no more night there. Heaven will be a place where the darkness of this age is forever gone. That The light isn't artificial. You know, the sun even gives us an artificial light, but God himself is the light there. And then if you notice at the end of verse 5, God's people shall reign forever and ever. Heaven will be a place where God's people enjoy an eternal reign. Friends, this isn't the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. This is an eternal reign. Throughout all eternity, it will never end. This is it, friends, that the Bible began with paradise lost. This is paradise regained. And we see the return of paradise. You see the imagery of the book of Genesis, of of the Garden of Eden all over the place. You have a river, a tree of life, the revocation of the curse, intimacy restored, and reigning resumed. Friends, the, the Lord God is walking through the cool of the garden again, isn't he? Fellowshipping with his people. It's a perfect consummation. You have no more curse. That's perfect restoration. You have the throne in their midst. That's perfect administration. You have the servants shall serve him. That's perfect subordination. They'll see his face. That's perfect transformation. His name is on their foreheads. That's perfect identification. And God is the light of everywhere. That's perfect illumination. And they're going to reign for heaven. That's perfect exaltation. And it's all going to be ours. It's all there for us, friends. Does it sound almost too good to be true? You're kind of pinching yourself. How, how can it be? Well, you know, John felt the same thing. Look at it there in verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. I'm not lying is what he says. It's really for real. It's really true. It's going to happen. The angel showed John things that just seemed to be too good to be true, but he's assured, no, in fact, it is faithful. It is true. And notice it here in verse 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Then Jesus breaks in in verse 7. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. John reminds us of the suddenness of these events. And while John's reminding us of the suddenness, friends, that's the idea behind these things will shortly take place. And some people would read this and say, well, you know, I guess John was wrong. 2,000 years since you wrote that, John, and it's still not happened yet. No, 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 friends. The, 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 the essence of the Greek word that Paul wrote, excuse me, that Paul, that John wrote with there, where he says, I come quickly. The, the, the ancient Greek word isn't exactly the same as our word for quickly. It, it might just as much be rendered with equal accuracy as suddenly. The whole point is be ready. It's going to come suddenly at a time you don't expect. Friends, the early church expected Jesus' return soon. And they were not wrong. Jesus did not mislead them. Friends, God wants every generation to wait expectantly for the coming of Jesus Christ, watching and ready for His return. Sometimes we get the picture all wrong in our minds. We think of a timeline and a distant point somewhere out on the timeline where the return of Jesus is and where his people will rule and reign with him. And we think, well, we're getting closer to that timeline, closer and closer and closer. Friends, I don't think that's a biblical perception of it. No, in fact, I want you to think of the edge of a table. And all since the beginning of creation, all up until the time of Israel, all through the time of the prophets, all up until the work of Jesus and his finished work on the cross and the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost, it's been rushing to the brink, to the edge of that table, to the edge of a cliff, so to speak. And then as soon as the church was founded on the day of Pentecost, God's work stopped at that edge. And now it runs parallel to the edge, ready to go off into eternity anytime. And God says it can happen any time. It can happen very suddenly. It's on the brink. Friends, we have been on the brink for 2,000 years. You say, well, that's ludicrous, on the brink for 2,000 years. No, not in God's mind. And not in the mind of eternity. Friends, when we're at this place of Revelation chapter 22, do you know how insignificant 2,000 years is going to be? That's going to be like the time it took you to eat breakfast this morning. 2,000 years, that's nothing. So friends, notice what he says here at the end of verse 7. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This blessing reminds us that prophecy gives us a word to keep. 
Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. It's not just interesting material for discussion and debates. The main intent of prophecy is to lead us to trust and obey God and to apply his truth to the way that we live. Notice here verse 8. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Oh, John, you're doing it again. Verse 9, and he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Just like John did in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, John's overwhelmed again, and he bows before an angel in worship. In the same way, the angel reminds John that only God should be worshipped. Then he says, you know, we're both players on the same team along with all those who keep the words of this book. Isn't that a glorious thing? Think you're on the same team as the angels. We're all servants of the same God. We remind ourselves as well, friends, that no created being should ever be worshipped, period. Now, Jesus is not a created being. We worship Jesus. Jesus receives worship from angels, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6 tells us. And he also receives worship from men. And so he says, don't do that. Look at it there. I like it. It says in the, in the end there of verse 9, he says, the angel says to John, see that you do not do that. You say, wait a minute, John. Look at this. You, you received these great spiritual visions. I mean, John's walked some pretty high ground, hasn't he? Say, oh my, what great spiritual visions, what great spiritual accomplishments. Wow, John, it's spectacular. You know, it doesn't matter what kind of great spiritual experiences you've ever had. You can still get caught up in idolatry. You can still bow down before an angel. Isn't that amazing? Here he is walking this high ground and he's worshiping an angel. Friends, supernatural visions and revelations do not mean that someone is correct in their doctrine, teaching, or practice. What if John wouldn't have listened to the angel's correction? And then he goes around saying, I had this heavenly vision and I bow down to angels. You should too. No, thank you, John. It goes against the word of God. But John was corrected and he received the correction. Now look at it. Here's another warning. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. You see, friends, again, the time is at hand. Because the time is at hand, all history runs parallel to the brink of the consummation of all things. And this book isn't sealed. You know, some aspects of Old Testament prophecy were sealed until the present time. In Daniel chapter 8, he was told to seal the book. But friends, whenever anybody seals the book of Revelation, they're doing it in defiance of God's word. God says, do not seal this book. Let it be open. Let it reveal Jesus Christ. And then in verse 11, there's a solemn call to readiness. Look at it there. He who's unjust, let him be unjust still. He who's righteous, let him be righteous still. Now, the thought here is not God saying, well, I don't care. If you're unjust, then go ahead and be unjust still. No, no, that's not the idea at all, my friends. The idea here is something like this. Since Jesus is coming so suddenly, there's not going to be time for change. So change now. Friends, if you're unjust when Jesus comes, there's not going to be time to change. So get right with him now. There's no time for last-minute repentance, but there is time now. Let me put it to you this way. If what we've studied in the book of Revelation hasn't changed you so far, I don't think there's much hope for you. If the warnings in this book isn't sufficient for you, then there's nothing more that God has to say. There's no second chance later. You're not going to pass into eternity unjust and then receive the opportunity to become just later. No. No, friends, this is what it is when you pass from this life into eternity. You're unjust, you're going to be unjust still. You're filthy, you're going to be filthy still. But you're righteous, you're going to be righteous still. You're holy, you're going to be holy still. Now Jesus breaks in again in verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. 
You know, we can never miss the note of urgency and warning in all that Jesus tells us about his coming. His message is always be ready. Friends, be ready now. That's why I think it's so important to have a prophetic understanding that says Jesus is coming soon. Jesus wants us to be ready now. Now, he says, my reward is with me, verse 12, to give everyone according to his work. Does that mean that we're saved by our works? No, not at all. But it means that living faith will have works with it. Let me put it to you this way. The quality of your life provides the ultimate indication of what you really believe. Charles Spurgeon said that the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. So friends, it's entirely fair to take a look at the life and say, is this the life of a Christian? Is this the life of a Christian? If you've really believed in God, it's going to show in your life. We're not going to have any of this uh, phony, baloney belief that James condemns, where a person says they believe God, but somehow it never makes any difference in their life. That's just an intellectual thing. So Jesus says he's going to give everyone according to his work. Not because we're saved by works, but works are a reliable indication of what we really believe. And to demonstrate his authority in this matter, look at what Jesus says in verse 13. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is an added incentive for us to do and to be what is right and to be ready for Jesus' return. He's reminding us just who he is. If we really know and really understand who Jesus is, we will not have any trouble being ready for his return. There's the Alpha, the Omega. Friends, that's the A to Z and everything in between. The first and the last and everything in the middle. These terms mean that Jesus is the beginning, the middle, and the end for the Christian. Friends, he should be the A, the Z, and all the letters in between. The first, the last, let's give him the middle too. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, Preach orthodoxy, or any other form of doxy, and if you've left out Christ, there is no manna from heaven, no water from the rock, no refuge from the storm, no healing for the sick, no life for the dead. If you leave out Christ, you've left the sun out of the day and the moon out of the night. You've left the waters out of the sea and the foods out of the river. And you've left the harvest out of the year and the soul out of the body. And you've left the joy out of heaven. Yes, you've robbed it of it all. There is no gospel worth thinking of, much less worth proclaiming in Jehovah's name if Jesus be forgotten. He's the A to the Z. Look at it here in verse 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have their right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Doing his commandments does not earn us eternal life, but it is evidence that we have gained eternal life. That's why it says, blessed are those who do his commandments. By the way, there's another reason why you're blessed if you do his commandments. Because they're good for you. What if you just said, you know, blessed are those who follow the manufacturer's instructions for the new car that they just bought. Well, you'd be blessed, wouldn't you? You get more mileage out of the car, it'll run better for you. Better gas mileage. Friends, you see, God's commandments are good for us. That's why he says, blessed are those who do his commandments. Ah, yes, but notice this. On the outside, verse 15, dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers. What about those on the outside? Please don't think that there's multitudes thronging outside the gates of heaven, uh, banging on the walls, banging, let us in, let us in. We want to escape hell. No, it doesn't work like that, friends. It simply describes the, the state of the future with the images of the present. I do have to discuss here that in verse 15, it says, outside are dogs. Some people believe this is a refutation of the idea of doggy heaven. But no, it is not. We're not talking about literal dogs here, friends, not at all. 
morally impure people is what it's referred to. Dogs in ancient uh, eastern cities, they were scavengers. They, they were contemptible creatures. And it was just a term of derision applied to gross sinners. Now, as far as doggy heaven goes, what can you say? Listen, I like what C.S. Lewis said. And I think it goes very well with the spirit of this chapter. If you need your dog to make it heaven, your dog will be there. Either your dog will be there and you'll love it, or you know what? You just won't care in heaven. There'll be too much other great stuff and it just won't matter to you anymore. I think that there are a lot of things that deeply matter to us on this earth that aren't going to matter a thing to us in heaven. And, uh, you know, are we going to have this? Are we going to have that? Is this going to be there in heaven? Is that going to be there in heaven? I can just imagine, you know, one of my sons thinking, you know, are they going to have a, you know, a a Super Nintendo or the latest PlayStation in heaven? Well, you give the same answer. If it wouldn't be heaven for you without it, God will have it there. But I have the sneaking suspicion when you get there, you just won't care. Notice this now, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus is adding his word of verification there. But with these solemn words, Jesus authenticates the entire book. I mean, look at it there in verse 16. It's remarkable. He's dictating, I, Jesus, I'm authenticating this entire book, Jesus says. This is my stamp of approval. Friends, much of the book of Revelation seems fantastic, or it seems too good to be true, but it's all true. Friends, uh, this was written by a brilliant commentator named Seiss. He says, Thus the very God of all inspiration and of all inspired men reiterates and affirms the highest authority for all that is written herein. Either then this book is nothing but a base and blasphemous forgery, unworthy of the slightest respect of men, and specially unworthy of a place in the sacred canon, or it is one of the most divinely inspired and authoritative writings ever given. I mean, Jesus says, I, Jesus, I testify that this is true. Either that's true or it's not, and I believe it is. He's given the The responsibility here in verse 16, to testify to these things in the churches. I want you to notice something. The book of Revelation is written to the churches. It's not a private affair, knowable only to the elite, only to a select group of super brainy Christians. They're the only ones who can understand the book of Revelation. No, it's for the churches. It's for us. Who says so? The root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Isn't that a glorious messianic title for Jesus? The bright and morning star. And just as the morning star, just so you see Venus up there in the sky shining at the dawn's light, you know that the dawn is on its way, that the morning star shines and welcomes the new day. So does Jesus. He he heralds the coming day in his role as the one who comes for the church in the rapture. He's the bright and he's the morning star. So look at the invitation here in verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. And whoever desires, let him take the waters of life freely. Now who are they saying come to? Are they saying it to Jesus? Are they saying, Jesus, come quickly. We want you to return. Or perhaps it's an invitation to to those with the spiritual thirst to come to Jesus. Maybe it's the Spirit and the Bride reaching out to sinners, reaching out to those who haven't embraced Jesus Christ yet, and saying to them, come. I believe it's the latter, really. Later on, John is going to give his own thing to Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But no, this isn't a call to Jesus. This is a call to us. This is a call to mankind. Come. Well, who can come? Look at it there in verse 17. Let him who hears say, come. If you hear, you can come. But you can't come unless you hear. He who thirsts can come to Jesus. But you can't come unless you feel your thirst. And whoever desires can come. But you can't come unless God works in your heart to desire him. So how do you know if God's worked in your heart? We'll go through a little checklist. Have you heard? Are you thirsty for God in eternal life? Do you want him? Then come. Come. 
He said, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Look at it there in verse 17. I'm not making this up. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. No, friends, God hasn't said, well, this is an invitation just for a few. You folks over here, you don't listen to it. This is just for you folks. No, it's whoever desires, come. It's an open invitation to receive salvation from Jesus. He will not exclude anyone who comes to him. Now, on this note, let's remember that an invitation is both an opportunity and a responsibility. If you decline an invitation, you only have yourself to blame. Well, you were invited to come to the party, but you didn't want to come. But you were invited. Friends, I want you to glory in the greatness of this invitation. Listen to it again. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Anyone who desires salvation in Jesus Christ can come to him and take of the water of life freely. Well, but but I don't understand all the Christian doctrine and theology. Well, come anyway. It didn't say whoever understands, let him come and take of the water of life freely, right? He said, well, I can't repent the way that I should. My heart's hard. I can't even weep over my sins. I don't even feel bad about them the way that I should. Well, come anyway. It doesn't say, whoever feels, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. I don't know if I can live the Christian life the way that I should. Well, come anyway. It doesn't say, whoever can, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Well, I don't know if I'm worthy to live the Christian life. Well, come anyway. It doesn't say, whoever's worthy, let him come of the water of life freely. Time for some Spurgeon, I think, here, friends. He says, but mark the sinner, it says, whosoever. That a big word, that is. Whosoever. There's no standard height here. It's a height of any size. Little sinners, big sinners, black sinners, fair sinners, sinners double-dyed, old sinners, aggravated sinners, sinners who have committed every crime in the whole catalog. Whosoever. Come. It's really this simple, friends. Do you desire Jesus and his salvation? Look at it there, verse 17. Whoever desires, let him come, take the water of life freely. Do you desire Jesus and his salvation? Then come. Can you say this in your heart? Now, Lord, I desire to be saved. Give me a new heart. I desire to give up my sins. I desire to be a Christian. I desire to believe. And I desire to obey. But I don't have the strength to do any of this. I have the desire. You put in me the power. If this is your desire, then you're freely invited to come. If you're only willing. Do you know what this means? It means that there is no barrier between you and Jesus except your own stubborn will. No, you're not excluded because you're not good enough. You're excluded because you don't desire to come. You come to him as you are. But if you desire to come, he'll receive you. What do you do once you come? Verse 17. Let him take the water of life freely. When you desire, when you come, then you must take. Isn't that interesting? God says, come to me and take from me. That's what God says. God says, I'm giving, you're taking. How different this is from all other religion, from every other superstition or or spiritual effort that's ever, friends, the the, the gods, the the, the pagan gods, the, the gods of men's imagination, they don't give, they take. You come to the gods and he takes from you. You give him your fortune. You give him your animals and sacrifice. He takes. God says, no, 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 no. You take from me. The essence of Christianity is summed up in the idea that God invites us to take the water of life freely. You cannot bring anything to save or justify or commend yourself before God, but you can take the salvation that he offers. Friends, it's so fitting. This great invitation comes at the very end of the book of Revelation, the very end of the Bible. I want you to consider that in verse 17. Are you here tonight? Do you hear this? 
then the Bible says, let him who hears say, come. Now, when's the last time you said, come, to somebody? When's the last time you called somebody to come to Jesus? Come to Jesus. He wants you to do it. You're one who hears, right? God will give you an opportunity. Say, well, you know, I'm not much of an evangelist. You're one who hears. Why not make it a prayer tonight? Lord, tomorrow, give me an opportunity to tell somebody to come to Jesus, to invite somebody to come to Jesus. You can make it that. I, I think you should come to Jesus. He wants you to come to him. It's a beautiful invitation, one that you can make. Friends, again, Charles Spurgeon, all the prophets of the Bible, all the apostles of the Bible, all the threatenings of the Bible, all the promises of the Bible, gather themselves up and focus themselves into this one burning ray. Come to Jesus. Come and take the water of life freely. Now, verse 18 closes the book with a warning. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Friends, this is heavy, isn't it? Now, in my Bible, this is in black print. I wonder if it doesn't belong in red print. Maybe it was Jesus himself who said this. Maybe it was Jesus himself who gave this solemn pronouncement. Some commentators believe so, and I might add my voice to theirs. Friends, do you see what a high price there is to pay for tampering with the scriptures, with the book of Revelation specifically, and with the scriptures in general? Friends, you don't add to it, you don't take away from it. And might I say that this solemn promise also implies that the book of Revelation can be understood. Why would God give such a strong rebuke attached to a book that, that, that well, you can't really understand it anyway? But we can, not in totality, but certainly in the main. Friends, how arrogant man is to tamper with the word of God. To look at it and to say, well, this is God's word, but this is not. Jesus said this, but he didn't say that. What arrogance. We don't want to add to it. We don't want to take away from it. This is the book. And finally, verse 20 and 21. Excited? Last couple verses here. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. Friends, to the very end, the book of Revelation emphasizes readiness and watchfulness. If you miss this practical lesson from the book of Revelation, be ready, be watchful. If you miss that, then you're going to miss the whole message of the book. Look, is it not enough for Jesus to say, I'm coming quickly? Is that not enough for you? Look at it there in verse 20. He said, it might not be enough for some of you. So I'm going to say, surely, before it, surely I am coming quickly. No, it doesn't mean it's just coming for women named Shirley. That's the surely that means verily, of course, certainly. Surely I am coming quickly. And then at the end of it, he wants everybody to know. So he says, amen. He puts emphasis on both sides. Surely before and amen after. He wants us to be ready. And John, when he hears that, all he can do is cry out, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, he cries out. Friends, the book of Revelation concerns many prophetic events, but it closes with John's longing for the return of Jesus for his people He wants the rapture of the church. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, the Bible says that all creation is groaning and waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Well, how much more should the sons of God themselves groan for it? And finally, John finishes the the book, the New Testament, the Bible, 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You know, Paul liked to end his letters in the same phrase. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, all end with that exact phrase. Matter of fact, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul said, by this signature, you know this is genuinely one of my letters. So let's see what he says. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Friends, whatever you miss, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. In whatever points you or I fail, may we never come short of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know how glorious this is? Keep a finger here. Turn back to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. Let's look at the last verse of the Old Testament. Malachi, chapter 3. Again, we're looking at the last verse of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, I should say. I'm sorry. Forgot that there were four chapters in the book of Malachi. Malachi 4 6. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The last sentence of the Old Testament speaks of a curse. The last sentence of the New Testament speaks of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with us all. Isn't that fitting? Grace describes God's dealing with man on the basis of the new covenant. Friends, how can we be worthy to escape this terrible calamity that the book of Revelation says that's going to come on the earth? It can't be that we're worthy enough in ourselves. It's that we're found in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you ready? Do you want him to build in you that, that gracious relationship with him? Friends, I can't pray it any better than that. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen. Father, we bring to you this book of Revelation. And Lord, if we don't live and walk in the grace of Jesus Christ, then Jesus is not revealed to us. But we want him to be revealed. We want to see him and know him and rejoice in him. We love you and honor you, Lord. Pour out your spirit upon us. We say together with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We can't read all this glorious truth about heaven without longing to be there. So keep us aimed heavenward and keep us ready for your glorious return. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.